0: Let's pray together, asking that God would help us understand his word. Gracious and loving Father, in your love, you have given us your word. Your word is good for us. It's healthy for us. It's safe for us. It's designed to give us life and joy. And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand this word and to take from it that which you want for us we pray these things in the name of your son jesus amen well brothers and sisters as the church we should experience together and enjoy the peace of god our life together should be characterized and pervaded by that deep sense of well-being that we call the peace of God. Instead of being marked by fighting, anxiety, and fear, our life together should be marked by a divine peacefulness that includes our relationships with one another, our relationships with the world, our internal realities, our thoughts about the future, our thoughts in general, and most importantly, our relationship with God himself. To put it succinctly, The church of God should be full of the peace of God. The church should be a sort of heaven on earth. It should be the loveliest place on earth precisely because it should be the place where the peace of God is experienced most palpably, most tangibly. The church should be a safe haven, a refuge, a shelter, a sanctuary where the weary and embattled can find a peace which surpasses understanding a peace which the world cannot give, a peace which the world does not afford. This, dear friends, is what the church should be like. This is the ideal. This is what we all hope and pray that we experience in the church. We all hope to see the church filled with the peace of God. But as I talk about this ideal, and as we consider what the church should be, I'm aware that the church often falls short Of this ideal. If it's any consolation, this was also the Apostle Paul's experience. As the Apostle Paul made his way throughout the Mediterranean world, planting churches and pastoring churches, he found that fighting, anxiety, and fear quickly cropped up amongst the churches. Instead of being little colonies of heavenly peace, Scattered across the globe, the churches that the Apostle planted quickly became centers of division and strife. This is why the Apostle had to address so many of these divisive issues in his letters. The Apostle Paul was always, in a variety of ways, trying to reestablish and call his churches back to the peace of God. Now this morning we're looking at the Apostle's letter to the church in Philippi which means that we're especially thinking about those particular problems that plagued the church in Philippi. Now, you've heard me say over the past few weeks that the church in Philippi was what you might call a good church. In general, the Philippian church was characterized by unity, love, friendliness, generosity, and indeed peace. The men and women of the Philippian church seemed to get along quite well, and they seemed to be going along in a good way. However, as we come to the tail end of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we see that small signs of division had begun to crop up in the Philippian church. And we see that the Apostle Paul did not want to take the good track record of the Philippian church for granted. And so as we look at the verses that we have before us today, we'll find that the Apostle Paul was trying to nip division in the bud, and that he was encouraging his brothers and sisters to live in such a way that they were able to enjoy and experience the peace of God in their communal lives. In just these eight verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, all the way down to verse 9, the Apostle Paul gives eight encouragements, and he gives two promises. The eight encouragements have to do with focusing our lives on Christ and practicing what you might call Christian virtues and then both promises one in chapter 7 and the other in verse sorry one in verse 7 and the other in verse 9 have to do with the peace of God and the God of peace and so the basic logic of these verses is this if you ground and focus your lives on Christ and practice Christian virtues then this is the promise the peace of God will reign in and rest upon the church This text shows us that the way we act and the way we practice our faith within the church will determine the church's experience of the peace of God. If we fail to focus our lives on Christ, and if we fail to practice Christian virtues, then we might get saved by the grace of God, but we won't enjoy the pro-offered blessings of God on this side of heaven. If we fail to focus on Christ, and practice Christian virtues, then instead of being a place of peace, the church will be a place of fighting fear and anxiety. And so, dear friends, let's look at the Apostle Paul's encouragements, knowing that he is helping us to enjoy the peace of God. He's helping us to enjoy the peace of God in the church. And you know, the Apostle Paul loved the church And he wanted the church to relish in and to take full advantage of the blessings that God had given to it. So let's allow God's holy word to point us in the right direction. Let's first deal with this idea of focusing our lives, focusing the life of the church on Christ. Within the eight encouragements that the apostle gives, he encourages the church to find its unity in Christ And he encourages the church to find its joy in Christ, and he encourages the church to be prayerful in Christ. In verses 2 and 3, the apostle is dealing with a very specific situation between two women. Euodia and Syntyche were leading women in the Philippian church, and they had found themselves in some sort of disagreement. We're not told about the nature of this disagreement, but it was obviously grievous to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul loved these two women. The Apostle Paul had worked side by side with these two women, and so he wanted to see his sisters reconciled. As such, he encourages his two sisters in the gospel to, and I quote, agree in the Lord. The Apostle calls them back to Christ as the source of their unity. Sometimes when two siblings are fighting with one another, A father or a mother will remind the two that they're siblings. They'll say something like, come on, boys, you're brothers. Act like it. My mom used to say that to me. Well, in similar fashion, the Apostle Paul was reminding these two women of the bond that existed between them that transcended their disagreement. What these two women shared in Christ was more important and more fundamental than what they were disagreeing about. You know, one of the most interesting experiences in my life was when I got to go down to Mexico City for the General Assembly of the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Almost every country in the world was represented, and each country was equally represented. Each country was only allowed to send the same number of students. So it was the most thoroughly diverse crowd that I had ever been a part of. On one of the days, we had what were called discipline lunches, which meant that we ate lunch with all of the students at the conference who were studying the same thing that we were. And so this meant that I was sitting around a table of people who were all studying political science. I was studying political science at the time. Now, as you may know, politics can be a rather fiery issue. People tend to have sharp disagreements about politics, Well dear friends, to paint the picture for you, I was sitting around a table with Israeli students and with Palestinian students, with Ukrainian students and with Russian students, with Pakistani students and with Indian students, and I think you get the idea. I was sitting there as a very nervous Canadian hoping that nobody would fight. (laughs) Well dear friends, I can happily say that though not everybody used what you might call Canadian manners, They displayed with radiant beauty the power of Jesus Christ to unify people who have deep seated and profound differences. They didn't agree on everything, but they did agree on the fact that they were brothers and sisters in Christ, and that their identity and call as Christians was more important than their national identities. This disparate group of students were able to come to agreement on that which was most crucial and that which was most fundamental. Even though they had wild disagreements on a variety of topics. And so you see, friends, agreeing in the Lord does not mean that we agree about everything, but it does mean that we engage with each other determined to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we do not allow our squabbles to eat away at the unity that we share in Christ. Hell is characterized by the petty squabbles of human beings whereas heaven is characterized by the peace of God. So we as Christians are called upon to transcend our petty squabbles and to intend first to the nourishment and cultivation of our unity in Christ. This means constantly reminding ourselves and rejoicing in the new identity that we have in Christ. It means majoring on the things of Christ, the things that unify us. And so the apostle is very clear. He's saying he to us, Nurture and cultivate your unity in Christ, and the peace of God will be with you. Now if we move down to verse 4, we see that the apostle also encourages us to focus our lives on Christ by rejoicing in Christ. In fact, the apostle encourages us to do so emphatically. He writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Here we see that finding our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ is intimately connected to enjoying the peace of God the Father. To understand this connection a little better, we simply need to remind ourselves of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. To lift an example from this letter, uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, we're reminded that it is through faith in Christ. That we receive the righteousness of God. The apostle rejoices in Christ because it is through faith in Christ that he gains the righteousness that makes him acceptable in the eyes of God the Father. This aspect of us um, being accepted in the eyes of God the Father is a, a key component of the peace of God. Knowing that God looks upon us in Christ as pure and blameless fills our hearts with peace because it reminds us that in Christ, our relationship with God is perfect. In Christ, God the Father looks upon us as altogether lovely and desirable. Alistair Begg says that joy is the rational state of the Christian in view of his spiritual position in Christ. This was certainly the case for the Apostle Paul. He saw that he was righteous in Christ and that gave him great cause for rejoicing. And so friends, you can imagine, I'm sure, a church community that for one reason or another has failed to rejoice in Christ. Maybe this lack of rejoicing was developed over a long time. Maybe the lack of rejoicing was in reaction to something sudden and specific. Whatever the case may be, you can imagine that this church community would either have to quickly find something else to rejoice in or resign themselves to becoming more (laughs) and more miserable. This, unfortunately, is the fate of many churches. They fail to rejoice in Christ, and so they try to find other things to rejoice in. They rejoice in community, or service, or justice work, or pretty music, or well-written liturgies, or a sense of moral superiority, or you fill in the blank. The problem is that none of these things have the power to lastingly keep you in the peace of God. A pretty bit of music may give you peace for a moment. It may even give you a deep sense of transcendence. But it is unable to carry you through uh, in the face of deep division and in the face of deep opposition. We rejoice in Christ because it is he who brings us lasting peace in God. Only Christ can give peace to the church and so we rejoice in Christ. Rejoicing in the Savior teaches us to enjoy our salvation. Rejoicing in the fact that Christ has reconciled us to the Father helps us to enjoy that reconciliation. And so the great danger for the church, the great danger that Paul sees for the church, is that it might shove Christ out of the spotlight. The great danger for the church is to sort of shuffle Jesus to the side, and to bring something else and put that in the center. Often this happens subtly, and we don't realize that it's happening. And so, dear friends, it's through Christ that we are reconciled to the Father, and it's by Christ that we receive the Holy Spirit. Only through Christ are we able to enter into the life of God and enjoy the eternal life that he has for us. One of the key ways that we prevent ourselves from getting pushed off kilter is by continuously rejoicing in Christ, This is what we do every Sunday, and I hope it's what we do throughout the week when we're at work or at home. If we jump down to the last bit of verse 5, we'll see that the Apostle Paul reminds his friends that the Lord is at hand, which means that on the one hand, he's very close, right? He's accessible. And on the other hand, it means he's coming soon. And the Apostle then encourages his friends not to be anxious, but instead to be prayerful. There's two encouragements here. One, don't be anxious, and two, be prayerful. Specifically, Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul is saying that the nearness of Christ, the closeness of our advocate and Savior, reminds us that all is well, and that all things are in his hands. As such, we should not be anxious, but rather prayerfully dependent upon God. You see, prayer does not destroy action. Prayer is not the opposite of action. Rather, prayer is the opposite of self-dependence. Prayer inspires us to energetic action which is totally dependent upon God. When we depend upon ourselves, there is fear, anxiety, and worry. We feel that all depends on us. We feel that all is resting upon our shoulders. And so we work frantically in an effort to save ourselves and to save all that depends on us. However, when we prayerfully depend upon God, there's peace. There's the peace of God because we know that all ultimately rests with him. We're freed up to actually do more because we're not hindered by fear, anxiety, Or worry and so Paul has offered us uh, these first four encouragements which all are about focusing on Christ the apostle reminds us that Christ is the source of our unity the source of our joy and that he's near to us and therefore dependable and that we can lean on him totally in prayer now the other four encouragements that Paul gives have to do with what you might call Christian virtues Paul encourages us to be helpful reasonable, good thinkers, and good disciples. He encourages us to be helpful in that he asks the church which surrounded Yodia and Syntyche to help out when their two sisters were divided, right? He doesn't just tell Yodia and Syntyche to deal with their issues by themselves, but instead he encourages their friends to get involved and to help them come to a place of resolution. And so, friends, often the peace of God is ruined in our midst because we're unwilling to help each other come to the point of peace, come to the point of reconciliation. And here the Apostle Paul is saying that within the church, when somebody has a problem, in a profound sense, it's everybody's problem. And we, your brothers and sisters, are there to help out. And so the first Christian virtue that Paul encourages the church to practice is the virtue of helpfulness, being helpful, being there for your friends. The second virtue that Paul encourages uh, his friends to practice is the virtue of reasonableness. This is in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And I love that, I love that the Bible tells us to be reasonable that word can also be translated as gentleness or as graciousness, right? Paul is speaking to his brothers and sisters and saying, be reasonable with one another, be gracious with one another, be gentle with one another. And the chief motivation behind this, of course, is that the Lord himself is this way, right? The Lord is gracious with us, and so we should be gracious with one another. So often the peace of God is, in the church is ruined by the fact that people within the church are unwilling to be gracious and reasonable with one another. Our prayer is that the church is not a harsh place or a demanding place or an unreasonable place, but rather a place where the peace of God reigns. And so the second Christian virtue that Paul calls the church to embody is reasonableness. The third is that Paul calls upon the church to be what I've called good thinkers. I couldn't really figure out how to summarize what Paul is saying here in one word, because he kind of goes into a revel. right? Verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul is encouraging the church to think in a good way. He's calling the church to meditate and to contemplate those things which are worthy of their thought and attention. Instead of focusing on that which is low or that which is unworthy, Paul is calling the church to think upon that which is high. And I'd like to suggest to you that the highest thing that we can meditate upon and contemplate is God himself. Sinclair Ferguson is a Presbyterian minister from Scotland, and one of the questions he always asks people who are preparing to enter the ministry is this What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? Imagine being asked that (laughs) when you're being examined for the ministry. And Sinclair's reason for asking this question is that a minister of the gospel, and I would suggest any Christian, when they have some free time to think about whatever they want, should often think about God himself. Think about what he's like. Think about what he's done. Meditate upon God. And so this is the third Christian virtue that Paul commends, being a good thinker, being somebody who meditates and contemplates the high things, the good things, the worthy things in life. And finally, Paul encourages the church to be good disciples. In verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so there's Paul. He's an apostle. He's there to teach the church. He's there to instruct the church. He's there to give the church the gospel. And what Paul is saying is, be good listeners. Listen to the things that I've told you. Incorporate them into your thinking, and then practice them in your lives. The word disciple is based upon the Latin word for learning. To be a disciple is to be a learner. And so encouraging uh, the disciples to listen and to practice the things that he's teaching them is Paul's way of saying, be good disciples, be good learners. So these are the four Christian virtues that Paul commands: Be helpful, be reasonable, be a good thinker, and be a good disciple. And those are paired with the four ways of focusing upon Christ, right? Be unified in Christ, be joyful in Christ, um, and depend upon Christ in prayer. Don't be anxious, depend upon Christ in prayer. And so I'll bring us back to the logic of this text. We should focus on Christ and practice these Christian virtues because if we do, then we as the church will enjoy the peace of God in our midsts. It's a remarkable thing that in our sinfulness and in our arrogance and ignorance, we can ruin the experience of the church. And in these verses, Paul is eagerly exhorting us, eagerly encouraging us to live our lives in such a way that the peace of God reigns in our midst. So I'm going to pray that God would give us the grace to do just that. Gracious and loving Father, Here we are, a little community of believers gathered together in your presence. And Father, I think it's safe to say that we would all like to enjoy your peace in our lives. We want you, O Father, the God of peace, to be with us, to be in our midst. And we want to have a palpable and tangible experience of your peace. And so we ask you in your mercy to help us to focus our lives together on Christ and to practice the Christian virtues that are commended in your word. And Father, we ask that you would keep all division, all fighting, all strife, all anxiety, all fear, far away from us. We pray that it would not creep into the church. We pray that it would not subtly affect the church. But we pray that we would be safe in your peace. This word promises that your peace will guard our minds, and our hearts. And so we ask that you would guard us with your peace. And Father, if we ever do get off track, and if little things begin to creep in, I pray that you would help us to notice it quickly and to do what's needed uh, to put it to rest. I pray these things in the powerful and mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.